Welcome to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes, an evolved perspective on life with dogs. Well, it's all right. Riding around in the breeze, well, it's all right. If you live the life you please, well, it's all right. Welcome to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Great to be here as always. Another fine day to take your dog for a walk. The ground is wet, so it sm- probably smells even better. And uh, speaking of smells, we're going to be focusing today on the dog's sense of smell, talking with Dr. Alexandra Horowitz about her new book titled Being a Dog. Super interesting stuff, great holiday gift for the dog enthusiast who is interested in learning more about what it's like to be a dog in the world. This episode is brought to you by Farm Dog Naturals. They have a fantastic small line of products, a a couple of healing skin salves, a household cleaner, and and a relaxing aromatherapy oil. Farmdognaturals.com is their website, and don't forget to enter in your coupon code for 15% off your entire purchase and free shipping. The coupon code is DOGRADIO, all one word, and that's at farmdognaturals.com. So I have Dr. Alexander Horowitz with us on the phone today from New York. Alexander, welcome back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Thanks so much. So it's been a few years since I've talked with you about your book, Inside a Dog. Inside of a Dog? or Inside, Inside of a Dog. Of a right. Dog, thank you. And... Uh, this is just, I mean, I i am so grateful for the opportunity to talk with people like you. Um, you're one of my all-time favorite guests. We've had over 400 episodes now, mm. and I just love the way you think. Oh, that's lovely. Thank <laughs> you very much. Yeah. Um, so you're, uh, you know, you are a canine scientist, and your focus is uh, and has been really a lot on the sense of smell. And... Mm. Um, there is, there's so much really interesting, not only information in this book, the title again is Being a Dog, um, but it also kind of brings up a lot of, of questions about us too. Um, and so, you know, a lot of really interesting things about the sense of smell, that it's the most emotional sense of all of our senses and, and, and why, you know, when you look at the the way how quickly it connects to the brain and all this really interesting stuff. So um, I'm just curious to ask you to start. Um, what was your undergraduate degree in? Mm, philosophy. Okay. Maybe that's not terribly surprising, <laughs> since given the way I, I go on about, um, you know, what it might be like to be another animal. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I got my start... Um, you know, philosophy used to be a science long, long ago, and in many ways it's asking scientific questions, but it has a different approach to what might be um, the, the answer. So uh, it was only after my undergrad that I turned to doing science and mm-hmm. started, you know, appealing to some of those answers. Mm-hmm. And so what what was your entrance into science? Was there a particular, I mean, was it always... Was it always dogs or, you know, did you, yeah. Yeah, I didn't, you know, I didn't, there wasn't a world of canine cognition or dog cognition. 
at the time that I went into graduate school. Um, but I was interested in non-human animal minds generally and sort of how do you find out about what it's like to be or the experiences of or the knowledge of um, a non-verbal animal. Um, and I went into a cognitive science degree program where we're really just studying, you know, cognition, the mind, the brain. Uh, and I got very keen on studying natural behaviors that you might uh, be able to make some inferences from about what the people or animals doing the behaviors might know. And, and play was one I got very, very interested in. And that winds up being featured in Inside of a Dog because it was through play that I realized I have to study a playing species, a species which shows me a lot of play. And then that naturally led me to dogs. Um, and my dissertation wound up being on dogs playing, which sounds like the amazing, fun dissertation that everybody would want. But it was a little a little tedious, um, but also a wonderful topic. And then dogs just got more interesting to me than the, than the theoretical question of, uh, gee, how do you know what's on the mind of any non-human animal? Why I got so interested in what's on the mind of the dog that, that the dogs became my subject. Mm-hmm. It's something that you've probably come across this, I would assume, because I come across, I mean, I get this too, with my work is with training and behavior. And, you know, I get every once in a while, very well-intentioned uh, friends say, you know, how, how great it must be to get to play with puppies all day, <laughs> you know, and meanwhile, I'm working with, you know, aggression and anxiety and all these things. And, and when you say, you know, your, your focus, uh, you know, scientific focus was on, you know, dogs, one, and then playing, two. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's so cute, you know. Right. And it's like, well, uh, play is one of the most powerful social uh, behaviors, and I mean, in dogs, and I think in a lot of other animals, too. Uh, you know, there is a lot there, and the more that we study it, the more that we learn how important it is like really important very deep there's a lot going on there as far as relationships go uh, absolutely and the behaviors within play are really complex mm -hmm. um, I, I totally agree it was you know I'm certainly not going to say there was any hardship or continues to be in setting dogs it's a totally privileged life to I, I consider it a privilege to be able to spend my career thinking about dogs um, but it's not as easy. It's not the, as straightforward as just kind of sitting, hanging out with dogs the way we do as dog owners and yeah. dogs people. Um, absolutely. Well, it's really uh, interesting. I think this this combo of philosophy, your sort of background in philosophy, and and then moving into science and studying nonverbal animals. Who there is brings us to a place where we really I think uh, contemplate consciousness or it's an opportunity anyway to really contemplate consciousness because I mean I say over and over and over and over again uh, you know dogs don't get enough credit for their level of consciousness their awareness of what is going on around them their sensitivity to things their uh, capacity to communicate language, social interactions. I mean, they're, you know, emotional world, all this kind of stuff there. It's so rich and there's so much there. 
and and the average dog owner has no idea uh, based off of my experience over 15 years of working with people and their dogs, mm. you know, they have no idea their dog's ability to, to, to process, to, to problem solve, to communicate. And it's like if, if an animal is nonverbal, then it's we as humans, I think, have a hard time kind of wrapping our brain around, well, can they communicate and can we communicate with them and if so, how? And, you know, one of your one of the things that you say is, you know, through sense, uh, through the sense of smell, which is there's a lot there. And we're going to get into that in a second is is, you know, what does your dog know about you that you may not know about yourself? Uh, what opportunity do dogs provide us to gain self-awareness by connecting with them in a in an intelligent meaningful way you know being present to them offers us a lot of opportunity and i've seen people have really uh significant breakthroughs about themselves in the context of learning how to communicate with their dogs because you have to get out of the verbal and into your body mm, and right and you have to see what you're doing in the world and mm-hmm. see what you're doing to others, including your dog. And I mean, most dog trainers I know talk about it being a training process for the person as much as or more than for the dog, um, which is to say an awareness of what you're doing and what works and what doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, and who you're, who you're having the conversation with, and yeah. what they know and what they don't know. And yeah, that's, I, so in many ways, I mean, that's what makes that, that's, one of the reasons I think that living with dogs makes us better. You know, people who live with dogs and spend time with dogs and attend to dogs, I think, feel that it's changed them. It's not just, it's great to have this thing, this object, this animate object. It's like, it's, you know, they build a relationship and it's changed them. And so that's, it's wonderful to be in that space, to be able to talk in that space and have people who are very interested in improving their relationship with their dogs come to me and say like how you know what can I see that I'm not seeing and how can I see it and to be able to show them some simple ways to uh, increase their understanding of of their dog mm-hmm. in talking specifically about scent uh, given that that is dog's primary sense uh, you say that we may see you know in connecting with dogs, how to return to that perhaps more primal so-called animal state of knowledge about ourselves and the world that we have forgotten in a culture wrought of technology and lab tests. And, yeah. uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm right there with you on that one. And I'm just curious, and I think you just spoke to it, but to just kind of ask the question, you know, well, what is the value of that? Why is that important from your perspective? You know, what do we have to gain from connecting or reconnecting to these more primal parts of ourselves that we seem to have forgotten? There are two things here. One is I very much think that if we want to understand what it's like to be a dog or to appreciate our dog's experience and to improve it, which is mostly what we want to do as people live with dogs, we have to understand what it's like to be a smelling creature. So the way to do that is to try to get in touch with the smelling creature that we are. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have perfectly good 
olfactory capacity, it's just mostly unused um, and certainly not used in the way dogs use it. There's as far superior, but hey, we have great noses too. Yeah. So there's that. And then the other thing is just the interest in finding out for me that that I do have this really underused sense of smell that I can start to employ if I want to voluntarily. You know, it gives me a richer sense of my surroundings and my experience. Um, it's like discovering you had the superpower, basically, mm-hmm. in my mind, which we had all along, which is right there on the front of our face, but <laughs> we've kind of ignored because culturally there's no, um, there's not a lot um, of importance placed on um, finding out about the world through smell. So I, I think there are two reasons to be interested in it, or at least I find myself interested for those two reasons. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's the eyes and the mouth. They're celebrated, right? And then the right. nose, if anything, it's like, mm, nope, <clears throat> need to change that, you know? Everybody feels like if they lost a sense, you know, they had old sort of, if you had to lose a sense, right. what would it be? People say smell. But I tell you what, people who've lost a sense of smell feel like they've really had a loss. Well, you can say goodbye to food, to tasting food, right? There's no taste, basically, <laughs> exactly. That would be you know, terrible. Just, just the uh, sweetness or bitterness but not the flavor. And that's incredible. People don't really appreciate how much of, of flavor is, is smell. And then also even smells they weren't consciously aware of, smells of their surroundings, of their partners, of their family members, mm-hmm. that they kind of count on as being present as part of them mm-hmm. disappeared. And that's alarming. And then there are danger smells. And then there are just pleasurable smells, you know, smells of spring or mm. of, of fruit or of uh, flowers or of a snow, the, the day of a snowstorm or the smell of the dirt after a rain. You know, all things which we don't, our culture doesn't point and stare and look at them and, and celebrate them so much, but they actually are a part of our experience. And when you lose it, you've, you've had a great loss. Yeah. Well, you talk a lot in your book, uh, being a dog, about the actual, you know, structure of a dog's nose and and uh, kind of the anatomy and physiology of of that, and um, you know, and then the the brain and how you know how it's all processed. And I always find that so fascinating. And one thing that I kept saying over and over because I was so kind of amped up about it, and. My wife was like, why do you keep saying that over and over again? I was like, I think I'm waiting for a bigger reaction from you because this is such so crazy (laughs) is that 1% of the genome is devoted to the scent receptors. Yeah, right. Uh, I do think that's crazy. I mean, of uh, everything else that there is to code for. Right. The whole brain, you know, <laughs> everything yeah. in the brain, how to get that together just to make the body, you know, the instructions to make a body, to get things running, the, all of that. But, you know, the nose, just the nose is 1%. If it were 1% of the way we, you know, spend our time during the day, we would feel like we're smelling all the time. It's, it's a yeah. huge minority of, of the time we commit um, in our day to smelling. So I, I, do, I agree. I think that's profoundly surprising. So if it's so genetic, then do we inherit 
our sense of smell and not not in the sense of like how how good or you know how how good of a sense of smell we have versus not or what but actually how we like what smells good to us versus what doesn't smell good to us as individuals do we inherit that because it's so genetic there are some theories that there are things that we are predisposed to dislike because um, it makes sense to have an aversion to them. So in other words, like fecal smells, uh, diseased, mm. uh, decrepit mm-hmm. smells, we should have an aversion because we, you know, our, our genes want us to not pursue and interact with that more. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, babies do not have that. So that's one way to look at it. Babies don't really differentiate between what we consider bad smells or even foul or horrible smells and what we think of as good smells. They're pretty, um, they, they like them all. You know, they're interested in them all. It's information for them all. They're a lot more dog-like in that way. And I think that what happens is that we learn how to behave toward smells, mm-hmm. um, and we learn which smells are bad and which smells our culture and our family and our friends like, and then that affects how we feel about them. That affects our very perception. Mm-hmm. So it would be more of a of environmental the, influence. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think so. Yeah, and that makes sense because it's such a learned or practiced um, sense, uh, you know, we don't think of, you say in your book, we don't think of smell as something that we practice like playing the piano. Right. But it actually, I mean, it actually, like the more you practice it, the better you get at it. And I mean, I think of people who are, you know, like a wine connoisseur who can tell the difference between this, you know, it kind of blows my mind to think about that. And to think that that's like, well, that's something that they've focused on for so long. So it's, it's a practice. It's a practice thing. Yeah, precisely. All the people I spoke to, the sommeliers, perfume creators or testers, right. um, the expert noses in the human world are people who, who say they were not born with great noses that they might have been interested in smells when they were younger, but that basically they practice, they spend a lot of time, you know, sticking little bottles or gla- or odors or glasses of wine under their nose and trying to distinguish the smells. And that's it. That's what it takes. And, you know, a dog has a perfectly good capacity, but if you don't let them smell anything for their whole life, they won't be good at smelling, right? Like, same thing. You have to have spent time smelling. It's just the dog is more predisposed to start out doing that and has better equipment to start out than we do. And and our culture does not predispose us. It discourages it. You know, you're not supposed to smell your friends. That's it's really, right. it's considered socially awkward to do that. Yeah. Like creepy, like why are you smelling my hair? <laughs> exactly, you know. right? But yeah. why, sh- it's, you know, if you think about it intellectually, why is that creepy? Yeah. Like we all have a smell. That's an, all things have smells. Even if you're very clean, you have a bodily smell. The dog knows it. So why is it creepy to notice that somebody else has a smell? It's, it's funny to me, even though I have that feeling as, as strongly as anyone else. Have you looked into that in your research, the sort of, so, you know, the history of 
deodorant and you know kind of the the cultural evolution of how we we relate to our sense of smell and our expectations of other people i know it varies in different in different cultures yes that is really the research it's it's sort of cross cultural how what how is it different in other western cultures how is it different in in the what remain of tribal cultures it's very different in those cultures you know they're, they have vocabulary for smells. We don't have a vocabulary for smells. You know, think about it. There's no blue or red or green to talk about smells. All smell words are, basically all of them, are referencing the thing that is, that's making the smell, the source. Mm. So that smells like an orange. That smells like toast. Not, there's a blue smell. Um, so, but cross-culturally, you see... You see when it appears, and often it um, this kind of aversion to smelling. Um, there are really long histories of perfumery um, going back thousands of years, and that's part of the history. Perfuming to either cover up a smell or as the sm- you know to be highly desirable, so they enjoyed smells, but it was that they wanted more and more of them. Mm-hmm. Um, the real difference is between you know city cultures and and really rural or agricultural cultures. Mm. That's where you see a big difference in, in approach. Hmm. I remember. And acceptance. Yeah. I wonder if it has to do with population density. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure that New York, for instance, where I live 150 years ago, was not a good-smelling place by, by you know, current standards. Yeah. There were a lot of foul smells. And... People's, there was a you know a long history in the states of an association between disease and the smell. People thought you could get the disease by the smell of mm. whatever it is, something mm-hmm. in, uh, infected or mm-hmm. um, something fecal. And of course, you can't. But that that connection was very powerful, mm-hmm. and so that contributed even further to saying like we have to deodorize, we have to sanitize, and de- to deodorize is to sanitize. Mm-hmm. And so there was a health aspect to it as well. Mm-hmm. I remember when I I went on an outward bound uh, trip. Are you familiar with the organization? Yeah, yeah. When I was like a sophomore in high school or something, and uh, we went. I grew up in Massachusetts, and we went down. Uh, mine was in the Allegheny Mountains of Virginia and West Virginia, and it was a two week hiking backpacking trip and at no time during the trip did we bathe yeah (laughs) and um it was really interesting because I I couldn't smell beyond myself so I wasn't offended by anyone else it wasn't like oh I have to be with all these people who you know reek it was that I just really got with my own body odor from not having bathed for two weeks and you know being out and physical and all that and it really wasn't I don't remember it being you know that hard it was just something that I noticed and kind of got used to and couldn't really you know didn't really smell much beyond myself so I mean everyone else was walking around with their own odor but my nose was the closest to my own so you know (laughs) and it was unfamiliar you know you didn't usually smell that strong and so you kept noticing it yeah it's like oh yeah it's interesting I think there's like a lot of interesting psychology attached to our relationship with sense of smell and the history of it and and all that that you know you could be really interesting to get into and also that and you talk about this in the book is uh 
it's the most emotional sense. It's the, the most right. direct line or the quickest way to get to the amygdala, which is the emotional center of the brain, is through the sense of smell. Did I say that right? Yeah, no, precisely. Okay. And that's why I'm a little surprised. And, and to memories as well. There's a you know, strong connection between mm. smell and memory. And I'm really surprised that we aren't, as a culture, more interested in smell, given that if I go around asking people, what's their first smell memory, you know, and what's your first smell memory? Do you have one, Julie? Uh, I can't think, you know, now I'm going to think about it. Think about it. Yeah. You know, usually they're very nostalgic Mm -hmm. smells, you know, they'll be like a grandmother's attic or opening up an old book and suddenly you remember your, you know, great uncle and sitting there with his pipe or whatever it is, or Mm -hmm. going to a certain place, camping, summers by a lake, something, it's a positive, usually a positive, mm-hmm. in fact, almost exclusively positive mm. association. The emotion is very pleasant. And so that we have the possibility of having these satisfying, <laughs> neat memories, which have positive emotions associated with them, triggered by smells, triggered by remembering smells. And, and yet, we kind of ignore it. Those usually only come up unconsciously, um, not deliberately. And we don't try to, you know, make new smell memories particularly. We just let them happen to us or not. Mm. And so I'm surprised we don't kind of love smells as a culture. We, I did one reading, actually, where uh, I, I had a conversation with Myra Coleman, who is a friend and artist, and she uh, has written a lot about She's drawn a lot of dogs, and so we were both conversing, and through the whole conversation, we just kept making toast through the event, and the idea was to kind of make a smell memory for everybody who was there. Mm -hmm. Uh, Next time they smell toast, they'll be like, oh, that's just like being a dog, Mm -hmm. and Myra Coleman's beloved dog, it's just like that. Mm -hmm. You know, but we don't spend a lot of time as a culture trying to plant smell memories like that, which we could. Yeah. Well, and that kind of may, kind of makes sense because I've spent a lot of time talking about uh, and working with people, and then my own experience as a human being in the world, and and I've I'm just finishing my my first book that I've written about mm-hmm. what we learn, what we can learn about ourselves through learning how to communicate with dogs and how this can improve our relationship with ourselves and everyone else. Uh, you know, kind of increasing self-awareness. But this, I think there's a lot of running from memories that we do. And it's part of a function of that we're not necessarily taught in our culture to to slow down and be present with how fast technology moves us. And so even though scent is typically a positive association it feels like maybe unconsciously there's a guardedness with that. Like, well, I don't want to get too intimate with my memories or I don't, you know, I, I you know, mm. I think there's like a discomfort with that to, as a generalization in this country anyway. Uh, yeah. And there, and, and when I do, when I call it an animal like scent or a sense in the book, I mean that we do sort of associate it too with non-human animals. Like there's something, importantly um important about us where we stopped smelling freud you know mm. called thought that if if we all were smelling creatures it would be the end of civilization um and so there's a little bit of a 
a trend to think that way too. That's mm-hmm. you know, like it's a base emo- a base sense instead of vision, which is a, a higher sense, mm. like a distance from other other yeah. animals. It's a way to Whereas distance Whereas I just ourselves. want to understand more what it's like to right. be like the animals. You know, um, yeah. people want to be able to distinguish themselves from an animal, and so maybe don't use some of their older senses. Right. I mean, and I would feel that way too. It's like, <laughs> you know, I think about when in my own life, if I'm at the house and there's a liquid on the ground that I can't tell, you know, is it pee? Yeah. <laughs> and the it's either, okay, put a white paper towel on it. Is it yellow? Yes. Sometimes though, it's not that easy. It's sort of, you know, well, is that just dirty from the floor or is that discolored? I can't tell. Is it clear? How do you find out? You smell it. And then it's, it's, it's very reliable. Or yep. also, where is that smell coming from? You know, I'm walking around the corner from the living room to the kitchen and I'm getting this whiff of pee. Where is it coming from? And I'm on my hands and knees, sniffing the corner of the wall, sniffing the couch sniffing the floor you know the only way to find it is to actually get down and I'm kind of laughing at myself and but it it does have that feeling of like uh it's almost I I just get that like oh that's sort of uncivilized you know yeah I don't think a lot of people are doing that to be honest (laughs) (laughs) you might be rare among the people who will pursue like investigate something through smell that's the only way to find it you're doing Either that or a blacklight, I guess, but yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, well, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back and talk more with Dr. Alexandra Horowitz about her new book, Being a Dog, Following the Dog into a World of Smell. Really, really interesting book. We're going to, when we come back from break, talk a bit about marking and uh, more about pee and what that means to dogs and how that can give us some insight into how they communicate. We'll be back in just a few minutes. You're listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Looking for an easy way to give your dog's food a boost in nutrition? Or maybe your dog has a sensitive digestive tract, itchy skin, or is just a picky eater. We've had such great success feeding St. John Creamery raw goat's milk to our pack, and I recommend it to my clients all the time. You can get raw goat's milk for your dog all over the country. But if you live in western Washington, be sure it's St. John Creamery you reach for in the freezer section of your local independent pet supply store. You can also pick up your milk at drop locations around the area. Visit stjohncreamery.com to learn more. That's stjohncreamery.com. Your dogs will love you for it. This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to Anti-Icky Poo, the product that gets the stink out, we cover the world of animals. This week, December 18th, it's Harmonic Energy and Shifting Sunday with Jude and Paul Ponton from the Whispering Dragon Center in Seattle. They'll be in the studio with their Accutonic Forks, Tibetan Bulls and Bells, Pua Digin and Rattles, ready to do remote sessions for you, your animal friends, your home or business. Plus, we'll be celebrating Christmas and Hanukkah with the Jingle Cats. Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk. AM 1150. Eric, people ask me to help them with all sorts of doggy challenges. I can only imagine. Oh yeah, dogs jumping on guests, new puppy questions, behavioral challenges like fear and aggression, even dog food sensitivities. You name it and I've probably worked with it. But can you help people even if they don't live in Seattle? 
Absolutely. I've had great success with phone consultations and have even Skyped with people and their dogs from all over the country. Every dog should be approached as a unique individual. I've talked about this over and over again on the show. That's one of the parts of working with dog training and behavior that I love the most. Every client is different. If you're listening and you need help with your dog, just get in touch. I'd love to get you pointed in the right direction and answer all of your questions. Email me, host at dogradioshow.com. That's me, Julie Forbes, host at dogradioshow.com. I look forward to connecting. Wait, dogs can use Skype? We're really living in the future. (laughs) This is Julie Forbes. I'm excited to tell you about Farm Dog Naturals, a company that handcrafts herbal remedies for the all-natural dog. Quality and integrity are must-haves for anything that I recommend. Certified eco-friendly and cruelty-free, their products address issues like stress and anxiety, itching, hot spots, crusty noses, as well as pet urine, stains, and odor. Farm Dog Naturals is guaranteed, and I'm so happy with the results I'm seeing. Shipping is available worldwide from their website, farmdognaturals.com, or you can ask for them at a retailer near you. Again, that's farmdognaturals.com. Real people, real life, real radio. Alternative Talk, 1150. And now, back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Welcome back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Great to be here today. We're talking with Dr. Alexander Horowitz, who's the author of a new book, Being a Dog, Following the Dog into a World of Smell. Great holiday gift idea for the uh, intellectual dog lover in your life. This is uh, really fascinating stuff. It gets into a lot of science around the sense of smell. We learn a lot about dogs and also gives us an opportunity to contemplate quite a bit about our own relationship with smell uh, both personally and as uh, as a race ourselves. So uh, welcome back. So you did this marking study in, uh, with, you've probably done more than one, but this you talk about a marking study in a, a New York park where you set up a pole and then a, a camera, camouflaged camera that was taking video footage of dogs walking by this pole and marking and, uh, you know, kind of looking at, okay, if a if scent is a dog's primary sense by far, you know, humans who have sight, it's, it's sight for us. You walk into a room and you look around and, and, you know, it's how we get information from our environment primarily. Of course, other ways too. Dogs, they're going through the world through their noses and it's how they get most the most information about their environment through their nose and so what is it about this you know you're out walking your dog and more and more people are saying this and I love hearing this and you talk about it too that some people will have their exercise walks and people will also have their walks where they just let their dog sniff yeah and um that they will some you know some dogs more than others but they will the the you say in your book simply the amount of time that dogs left to their own devices spend sniffing indicates that the mark has reams of information and they're just there and sniffing and sniffing and sniffing and you know and I even find myself and I have to catch myself like okay chill out and just let them you know I'll, I'll be like okay I'm gonna let you sniff and how we're gonna have this sniff walk and then 
you know, unconsciously almost, I find myself getting a little antsy, like, come on, we got to move it along. And then it's like, nope, just let him, you know, let him check it out because clearly he's not done. Right. I I really encourage these smell walks, but I understand how it's hard to be patient with them. And it's precisely because, well, for one, we've always defined the walk as the way we define a walk. You don't go for a walk and stand around. You know, that's not a walk. And and so we've already predefined that it should be movement. We also know we have to exercise ah, our dogs right. um, if they're inside most of the day. Um, we've, you know, there's a pleasure in that, of course. And and so the standing and waiting for them to sniff can, I think, it tries a lot of people's patience. <laughs> but there is something um, terrific about knowing how much information there is in that for the dog. I'm certainly. You know, I like to give the analogy that if we were driving by the Grand Canyon and someone sticks their head out the window to look at the Grand Canyon and someone snatches their head away, you know, what would that be like? We're just looking, you know, to somebody who isn't visual, some, you know, a person standing there gazing in the distance, taking in all that information would be doing nothing. Mm-hmm. It would be so frustrating, and I feel like the analogy for the dog is precisely that. They're getting a lot of, they're getting the Grand Canyon, and we're tr- trying to say, move along. Yeah, I mean, two things there, like I, oh, we always say in the show, what a great day to take your dog for a walk, you know, yeah. like encouraging people to get their dog out, And but I'm like, maybe we should you know, change that sometimes. Like, what a great day to go out and stand with your dog. <laughs> you know, especially as my dogs have gotten older and my previous dogs were older. Yeah. You know, there it was there was less emphasis on and ev- for every walk mm-hmm. that we really make it a great distance. Some of the walks could be short walks where you have a place where you stop, you pause and and sit down, and they smell around for a long time. If you could take your dog a place where they're off leash. They can wander here and there and smell. That's I think that is stimulation mm-hmm. for the dog, and that's fundamentally what the walk is about. Let's remember it's an, it's about getting stimulation for your dog mm-hmm. of various sorts. Yeah. So it's important. Yeah. Well, and it also requires us to hold still, and that's not necessarily easy for people generally either because we're so go go go. We're not great at it. No. Absolutely. <laughs> well, when I was, you know, reading about the study, I was like, you know, you're talking about the dogs. And I was like, gosh, with all that video footage, <laughs> you know, what was the average amount of time humans let their dogs sniff the peephole? And you, you must have just witnessed all of this, you know, tugging and hurrying. And that must have been so frustrating to watch. You know, there's less than I thought Good. there would be. In other words, uh... I mean, maybe there's been a change in approach, but a lot of people really let their dog stop and linger. You know, not indefinitely, mm-hmm. but linger. And there might have been some happy medium that's that's been reached between dog and person. Right. Where the dog gets a little more sniffing and the person does a little more pausing. Yeah. They let the dog sniff, but not, you know, they're, they're cooperating on it. So sure. each is... It's a compromise. It's compromising. Yeah. And I think that I saw a lot of that, really. I mean, a lot of people stop and let their dogs uh, pause. And I, for, for a while, I had a sign up saying what the study was about because when, there's, when you put a camera in the park, I think it's, it's nice to sort of explain that as opposed to making it feel like everybody's being tracked. 
And so people would pause to read this, the sign, which actually had a secondary effect of of um, letting their dogs yeah. sniff around if they wanted to. They didn't always, you know. Yeah. Certainly they don't always sniff it, um, and that's interesting too. Mm-hmm. So what is your theory about why dogs mark on things? Because your point is that you don't think that they are marking their territory, which we sort of generalize to anytime you see a dog lift his or her leg. Yeah. Uh, oh, mark in their territory. Oh, mark in their, you know, oh, mark in their, and it's like, well, <laughs> let's hold right. hold on a second. Yeah, so, they're just definitely not marking their territory. That's all there is to it. There's no research to support that, that with that domestic dogs, unlike wolves, mm-hmm. you know, there are plenty of ways they differ from wolves, and yeah. this is one of the ways. They don't have home territories that they're, um, that they mark along the perimeter of to tell other wolves to keep out. Instead, it's it has to be social. And the question, I mean, it's still a work in progress. We still have the post out in the park uh, today, right now. Mm-hmm. And it, but the, it, it it is social information. We know it's left in urine, and we know they're leaving it in urine. And the question is, how do they decide? You know, um, what information are they getting, and how do they decide whether to mark at a certain place or not? That's still a little bit unanswered. I mean, as far as I can tell, our hypothesis is something that arises from what basically a common sense theory, which is that um, they're, if they smell uh, and they mark, that it's not because uh, they're the alpha dog or right. you know, or it's a t- they're marking their territory. It's because this is a good place to leave s- smells. It's a bulletin board. Mm-hmm. And I found a smell here, but I have some information to leave, so I'm going to leave information in the same area. It's almost never precisely on top of the last one note. Yeah. You know, it's just in that area. Right. Um, so it's a good place to leave information about yourself or get information about others. And that makes a lot of sense with a species where they don't live together, dogs. Mm. You know, mostly they live apart, but there are a lot of them around and they're interested in each other. And the way a lot of them will see each other is simply through residual sense Mm. left. Hmm. Yeah, I wonder if there'd be a difference between dogs who, you know, the the amount of interaction that dogs have with other dogs on a daily basis and how much they mark and all that kind of stuff. It's a great question. I mean, given that, you would think maybe less, although we know that even in an interaction, even in a dyadic interaction where you have two dogs, together they might not be marking all the time but they're always sniffing each other right Right, so they do seem to they don't stop sniffing once they know who it is once they get that first sniff so there does seem to be even more information that they're getting during the course of a real-time interaction sure so you know there's something else that we're missing still about what the purposes of leaving marks and hopefully we'll figure that out with research well, it makes sense. Like when you, you know, meet a person and, you know, you're meeting a friend at a coffee shop and, you know, you meet, you greet and, and sit down and then you don't like both. Okay. Let's close our eyes now and not look at each other anymore <laughs> because that was enough. And if anything, you, you look deeper. Yeah. The deep, you know, the more time you have or the, and I mean, there's certainly needs to be interest there, but uh, the curiosity I think just gets more and more. And there's such an emotional connection that really is just there for me in in contemplating sense of smell because it is the most, emo, you know, in science understood to be the 
the sense the sense connected with emotion the you know the strongest so uh does that what does that mean about a dog's emotional world are they are they highly emotional animals because their sense of smell is so incredible well that's an interesting question i i'm not sure really honestly what it what it says about their emotional world i mean we know they have an emotional world but i'm not sure how smell plays into it um i don't think it's been studied certainly we know that there's good reason to believe that smell is also closely tied to action Mm. and emotions can be caught up in that so certain smells will get someone excited Mm-hmm. And act and cause them to act right away, and you know evolutionarily it makes sense if you're a male dog and you sniff a female dog who's in heat, it makes sense to act on that right away to mm-hmm. get excited in a certain kind of way and act on it. So it could be that the emotion is caught up in some actions, you know how how you then decide to behave next, having gotten this information. Yeah, I happened to talk with Temple Grandin la- last night. Uh huh. As, as I w- about something else, um, an event next year, and um, I was you know knee deep in your book and and thinking about this, and I just took the opportunity to bounce that off of her really quickly. Uh, this connection between sense of smell and emotion, and her 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 perspective is that dogs are highly emotional animals and you know that was kind of her her opinion on it I just kind of threw that one at her since I had the opportunity uh you know sense of smell and I and you know we didn't go any further than that and we didn't cite references and studies and you know clarify it scientifically but her opinion was that yes yeah oh sure I agree yeah it would be wrong to say that because we don't have evidence for it there are not you know not having emotional experiences. Um, yeah. They definitely are and we see we see it right in their behavior all the time. Yeah. Um so you had said P-mail actually isn't far off as we sort of jokingly say, "Oh, you know, she's checking her P-mail." It's like, I well, think that's right. actually, yeah, social information. Yeah. Yeah, the dog dogs really do seem to really be interested in each other and it provides uh or presents challenges. One of the most common uh, behavior challenges I work with is leash stuff. Mm. And, uh, you know, a lot of times dogs are frustrated. They get excited and then they're held back. And that energy just kind of spills out in in various behaviors and sometimes even looks like aggression when, but the dog actually isn't like a dog aggressive dog. They're just kind of like, ah, you know, (laughs) I get across and see that dog. (laughs) Right, precisely. Yeah. And I think smell is important there because a lot of people who have reactive dogs, mm-hmm. um, there's a cycle that happens where the dog then is disallowed from smelling other dogs, approaching and smelling in this close sniffing way that dogs would on their own do with each other for fear that they'll have an aggressive reaction. Mm-hmm. And so they are they get even less information over time you know and then they want to get it more mm-hmm. they want to get closer to that dog more and so it's it can spiral you yeah. know i think uh it's not like oh we could let all the dogs run off and hang out together and all dogs will be equally good and they'll work it all out but 
we have to see that, you know, if they're prevented from sniffing each other, from getting that information, they're going to get worked up in some other dimension. Yeah. That's all there is to it. And so that could feed into the problem as opposed to work to abate the problem. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just adds to the the, the pressure cooker sort of. They're just frustrated and desperate. So you took a smelling tour of New York. Right. (laughs) Right. I was very amused by that part of the book. And, you know, you guys all going around and uh, checking, you know, smelling things and kind of talking about smell as a means for navigation uh, when your dog, uh, your old dog Pumpernickel got out and um, was ended up being found at the neighborhood uh, pet shop about a mile away. And, you know, did she know to, you know, take a left at the whatever scent it was that you said and um you know what was your what what did you get out of that experience the smelling tour it's, it, this is the beginning basically of my trying to understand what the olfactory experience a dog has on the street might be you know the first thing i did was just watched my dogs and followed them and smelled what they smelled which had me like down on all fours and the sidewalk sniffing a tree guard around a tree and and that it was awkward it was awkward and uh i didn't think i was up to it yet like kind of just sticking my nose where the dog's nose was going so um i joined kate mclean who is the woman who led the smell walk and she does smell walks in lots of cities she's trying to kind of get olfactory maps of different cities and um that's really what we did um we start off a handful of people all awkward and feeling silly about having to smell things. <laughs> and then within a half block, we're just, you know, our nose is going right up to a building or a tree or hovering over a garbage can or lingering under a air conditioning unit and seeing what smells are coming out from the sewer or the basement. And essentially just trying to attend to the thing which is in front of us and we aren't attending to. And that's what it did for me. It 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 was a reminder of how easy it is first to just turn your attention you know it does have to do with bringing your nose close to things to be sure but turn your start to turn your attention to olfaction mm-hmm. and then it's something you can practice assiduously later you know with little bottles or odors or things that you put under your nose but to see how much information there was just in an ordinary block was impressive was amazing you know it's it's eye opening mm-hmm. nose opening yeah, right. <laughs> As it were. Yeah. Um, I kept thinking of, uh, as I was reading this book, and, and if you're just tuning in, we're talking with Dr. Alexander Horowitz, who's the author of a new book titled Being a Dog, Following the Dog into a World of Smell. Um, I kept thinking about people who are visually impaired. And then, uh, and then you actually talked about Helen Keller. Yeah. And... Um, and how she could smell, I mean, her sense of smell was like, she could smell where somebody, like what somebody did for a living, like where somebody worked, if they worked with wood or with chemicals or with metal, right? it would be on their clothing. Um, and she could sort of smell where they had, where they had come from or, you know, where they, and and to think about, you know, her out of necessity without sight 
or, you know, hearing. Yeah. And so she was left with, you know, touch and um, scent and then other other senses maybe that we don't measure. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, so she she had practice, but it was accidental. You know, it was by, it was coerced practice, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it makes a lot of sense when you reflect on it that people smell like what they do at some level. I mean, if where we have less industry and more, you know, freelance writers, you, there's going to be less, fewer distinguishing smells, but yeah. there still are distinctive smells um, that that if we ha- forced ourselves to attend to by depriving ourselves of the ability to use our other senses, we would notice. And there are some studies that ask, you know, just normal college undergraduates, like all the good psychology studies, to um, try to find a trail, uh, a scented trail by smell alone. And it actually they blindfolded them and put goggles on and gave them heavy gloves and knee pads so they couldn't use touch. Mm. And, um, you know, they find it. They, yeah. can tr- they can navigate by smell. It's just you have to get down in there, and um, it helps to actually deprive yourself of using the other senses so that you, so that you have to smell of necessity. Mm-hmm. It seemed like the common theme in the, in the examples that you give throughout the book, um, you know, the, the picking out the book in the library that had been touched, yeah. um, that our sense of smell is actually better than we think it is now, like already, it's yeah. just that we we don't put ourselves in situations where we rely on our sense of smell because we have other senses that we lean on more. But that it seems like when it has been tested, we actually can. It's almost surprising. Like, oh wow, I actually, yeah. I actually That's how could it felt pick like that a out. Superpower to yeah. me was that you could just do it without any practice. I mean, then yeah. you can bring more attention to it and start doing it more intentionally and concertedly. But yeah, I could pick out a book among five books that my son had handled for a few seconds. I, I how could I do that? I don't I mean I I smelled it. Yeah. And I didn't even know what I was smelling, but I could do it. So that's fascinating. Um and I did the other little, you know, at home anecdote that people could try is I have two dogs, so they sleep on the sofa together. Um, and they but they switch off positions all the time. They don't have a, a side bias, and so I had my husband tell me when when they'd been sleeping on the sofa and they'd left the sofa, and I would come in and sniff the sofa and try to tell who had been on what side. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I turned out to be great at that. Yeah, you know. And of course, you everyone who lives with an animal knows the animal has a smell, but you're not. There's no, geez, there's no context to really focus in on and have to reflect and think on, like, what is that smell? You know, can I, would I be able to distinguish it from another animal's smell? Or what is it like? Can I describe it? Um, this type of thing. And once you start doing that, you realize you actually had some of that power to begin with. What we haven't done is looked in that direction. Mm-hmm. And even, even, I mean, and there's so much in language, and even in this conversation, you've pointed it out, you know, language being a factor to a lot of things and, and a good way to look at at me- cultural meaning is to look at what language is designated for this or that, you know, taking your dog for a walk as opposed to taking your, you know, for a stand 
yeah. you know, um, but like what we look at, you know, yeah. we don't look at, we don't look at our sense of smell. I mean, even in the language that we use, lo- like look, uh, or like when I tell people to listen to their dog, I don't mean literally with their ears because yeah. the dog's not going to be verbally processing. Right. So how else do we quote unquote listen, but with other senses? You know, to understand something in our language is to see it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that reflects the priority of vision for us. Mm-hmm. Well, there's so so much there. I mean, you talk about scent tracking and training and um, so interesting. I do a lot of nose work with dogs right. for fun. So it's just, there's so much there and, and it's an amazing way, powerful way to build confidence in a dog, to help work them through fear and anxiety. Tapping into their sense of smell is so fundamental and uh, it's just really awesome. There's so much information in this book called Being a Dog, Following the Dog into a World of Smell. We've been talking with Dr. Alexander Horowitz on today's show. Thank you so much for all of your really interesting work and the insight that you bring to us about our dogs and ourselves. Uh, Always a pleasure to have you on the show, and uh, thanks so much for your time today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Good. All right. We'll be back next week, live Wednesday at 2 p.m. Thanks for listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. You've been listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes, Wednesday afternoons at 2 on Alternative Talk, 1150 AM. Never miss another episode. Listen to our podcast online at dogradioshow.com or download them for free on iTunes or SoundCloud.